Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from Let Your Kingdom Come, a book that I put together to explain to God's people the, the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. Oh, it's already come in the form of Jesus and his spirit, but it's coming in a different style, a, a physical, literal kingdom that's coming with a the government on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. It's coming maybe soon. We don't know. But it will come when Jesus comes, and we look forward to that. Well, we're just about through the Bible now. We're doing, we finished almost all of the book of Revelation, but we come to a very critical chapter. Even this far into the Bible, there's a critical chapter regarding the coming kingdom. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation's final chapters, 20 through 22, have become a victim of the revisionists, those who wish to make the Bible fit a certain theology and eschatology. Revelation 20 is especially troublesome to them. Let's look at the words of Jesus first. In John 5, in the middle of one of Jesus' messages to unbelieving Jews, a portion of this talk has to do with the coming resurrections, of which Jesus identifies clearly two. He says there's to be a resurrection of life, and following this resurrection, one of condemnation. These two events seem in that conversation to follow one another immediately, giving fuel to the idea that a 1,000-year period in between the two resurrections is probably not feasible. Now, it is John who records this conversation. And it's that same John who saw the chronology of Revelation 20, about 60 years later, on the island of Patmos, as a prisoner of Rome. Now we've got to look at what he saw. Revelation 19 tells of a bloodbath that will occur when the crowned king, Jesus, accompanied by the hosts of heaven, for he is the Lord of hosts, returns. This story is told in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Jesus comes back. Now, that's literal so far, right? Of course, literal. And so we move to the next chapter, 20. Remembering there are no chapter divisions in the original. The story progresses without a stutter, without a stop. The very next happening is the rendering powerless of our great enemy, Satan. And for how long will Satan be out of the reach of the people of God? It says 1,000 years. You think that's literal? Why not? Of course literal. I mean, is there a place anywhere in Scripture where year is used with a number and that expression is figurative? Not to my knowledge, and I did borrow that idea from Mr. MacArthur, John MacArthur, but it's obvious, true. Or is there a place in the New Testament where the word thousand is somehow figurative? There were 3,000 souls added to the church on Pentecost. In Revelation, I read of 144,000 Jews from the various tribes of Israel. There are 1,260 days in Revelation's tribulation description. None of those usages are figurative. Why, then, in the six times in Revelation 20 that refer to the coming kingdom period, where the word is used, 
is thousand considered non-literal. After one thousand years, the enemy is released for one more bout with the Son of God, one which he miserably loses again. But then the text, verses 4 through 7, backs up to the beginning of the thousand years and describes the first resurrection of which Jesus spoke. Martyrs and holy saints are raised, raptured we now say, as also in Matthew 24. Not only do they live, but they reign with Christ during that 1,000-year period. A kingdom is coming, a millennial kingdom, a 1,000-year kingdom. As I said, no less than six times the number 1,000 is employed by the Spirit-filled Apostle of Christ in that Revelation 20 passage, who was there in the future. He saw and heard an angel, and he wrote down what he saw and heard. He had no reason to lie, no reason to allegorize, as people today do. Then comes that other resurrection at the end of the chapter. The rest of the dead are judged, and if their names are not recorded in the book of life, they are cast into a lake of fire. This is called the resurrection of damnation. All of this is in the same order as Jesus predicted in John's gospel. John does not contradict himself or the Lord. He merely inserts the later revelation given him by the Father through the angel, namely that in between the first and second resurrections is the reign of Jesus with his saints, a reign that will last a full 1,000 years. Of course, those who would take away the millennial reign of Christ must, quote, interpret this verse rather than simply accept it. I have to contend that the inability to take a text in its literal form and meaning is a possible sign of unbelief. Here's the actual wording of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. In verses 1 to 3, Satan, though he's going to be used later for God's purposes, for now he is to be put out of commission for 1,000 years. It's Revelation 20 still, verses 4 to 6, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verses 4 to 6, Satan is out of the way. 
Jesus is in charge. Those who rise in the first resurrection live and reign with Christ for that same thousand years. This is the millennium. Jesus, one by one, defeats his enemies, rules harshly, allows nothing evil on his planet. And then, verses 7 to 10, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. That's verses 7 to 10. Evil still lurks. And as one final push against it, Christ defeats a rebellion raised up by a suddenly free devil following the thousand years and seals his fate in that same lake of fire for eternal torment. Then, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Verse 11, the heaven. Then, 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 see the word then, the heaven and earth flee away. Then will come the new heavens and new earth. Not until then. This revelation was not given to Peter or even Jesus when he was here. This is the final piece of the puzzle given only to John, an intermediate kingdom to deal with God's final enemies via God's chosen man, the man Christ Jesus. And finally, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 13, death itself is destroyed. Eternity begins without sin, death, everything evil. It's all gone. Now, chapter 20 is so critical to the final chronology, and therefore it's attacked the most by those, as I said, who like rearranging things for their own purposes. Let's talk now about the kingdom in the new earth. Following the expanded description of the tribulation, and a brief description of the coming kingdom. There are only two chapters left in the Bible. Of those two, the second one contains only five verses telling of the final state of God's kingdom. We're faced with a puzzling question as we approach this state of things. Why, after a 1,000-year rule with his saints, does God decide to destroy everything and start over? Now the earth is perfected. Death is defeated. Certainly now we can enjoy the planet. But consider our own transformation. Though we were to die in perfect health and perfect relationship with God, these old bodies have been tainted. They've been corrupted. And they need to be renewed. At the first resurrection, this will happen. Well, during the millennial reign, as wonderful as it will be, there will still be sin and sinners. Death will be allowed until the last battle with Satan. 
Disobedience and defiance will be a part of even this new world under Jesus' control. The earth is tainted. God will remove his people, give them over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, and annihilate this planet once and for all. Some call it the uncreation. That final day of the Lord will involve the heavens passing away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Second Peter 3, verses 10 and 12. Peter, as Jesus in his incarnation, does not see the thousand years, as does John, seems to go directly to the final destruction from our present status, possibly using Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26 as a reference, and adding some words that he's hearing from the Spirit at that time. It's a true revelation, but not timed as John times the same event after the thousand years. Why does John see the bride of Christ entering the new earth? Did they not enter 1,000 years earlier? Consider, first there's the reign with Christ, then the earth is destroyed, and the people of God are taken to heaven while the new earth is created. Then they come back again and inherit the new earth. So let's talk about the millennium versus the eternal kingdom. There is a difference between the millennial period and the post-millennial period. Some. It's not totally different, but there are some significant differences. For example, there'll be no more death in the eternal kingdom. That was defeated during the millennium. There'll be no more temple. Ezekiel's millennial temple, the same house as seen by Isaiah, will no longer be needed. The Lord is now the temple. There'll be no more sun and moon. The Lamb is the light. The gates are not shut. No more enemies. No more curse. Absolutely no reminders of that last planet's corruptions. There'll be no sorrow, no crying, no tears. All things new, no night. All of those things will exist during the millennium. And here are the texts that make those statements in Revelation 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. 22.3 There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Other things to look for in Revelation 21 and 22, a description of the bride, the new city, the nations that shall still be giving glory to God, the tree of life, and then the book ends with severe warnings and an invitation for us to come to Jesus and Jesus to come to us. No more information? Nope, no more. We've got a thousand years to find everything we need to know about that eternal state, 
It's not entered into our minds, nor can it, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Not yet. So this is what Almighty God, Yahweh, his prophets, and his apostles taught about the coming kingdom. Now let me try to summarize my findings in this composite of the prophets and apostles' teaching. This is what I've been trying to say. An unconditional promise has been made of an everlasting kingdom to follow immediately after the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. A man shall have dominion over it, as the Lord God had attempted to initiate from the Garden of Eden. The territory of this kingdom will be headquartered in the land we call the Holy Land today. One day it will truly be holy, for the Holy One of Israel will dwell there. An everlasting covenant was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding this land. All the families of the earth will be blessed from it. A seed from Abraham descending through Judah and David will be the final ruler. All of God's enemies will be defeated. All of the elect remnant of Israel will be recalled from the ends of the earth to come back to the land and settle there for 1,000 years. The nations, the Gentiles, remaining after the Lord's return with judgment will love and serve Jesus for those thousand years. They will bring him offerings, travel to his land for worship, participate in regular feasts. The saints of the church will have been resurrected and allowed to reign with Christ. Twelve of them, all the Jewish apostles, will sit on twelve thrones, reigning with Jesus. His rule will be a righteous rule. Justice will prevail. Sin will be punished. The meek will inherit the earth with Jesus, along with the poor in spirit, men of peace and joy and love, and all fruit of the Spirit they produced in their pre-kingdom days before his arrival. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, will be the joy of the earth. The city of the great king will no longer be maligned by men, but will be honored by all. Though Jesus rules there with a rod of iron, he will also be the shepherd that tenderly cares for his own. Nature will be tamed. The animals, the weather, all will be controlled perfectly by the Lord and his people. The Spirit of God will deeply touch the Jews who went so far astray. They will loathe themselves and repent as the Lord sprinkles them with clean water and causes their hearts and minds to be turned to him in a new covenant. The waste places will be built up after the devastating activities of the tribulation period. Gentiles will help the rebuilding project and will generally be subservient to the government of Messiah and Israel. A new temple will be erected where the Lord himself will dwell and where sacrifices will be made as before. All of this will be merely memorial, not salvific. Jesus will be the center of all and the reason for all who are there. His blood finished the work and all will be made to remember this work for the thousand years. At the end of this period, the Lord will deliver all to the Father, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed, and a totally new planet will come into being. There is more, but these are the main items that we can look forward to. Now the question is, who else heard these voices and tried to carry them on down through the ages? I offer in our next segment 
quotations from men, mostly men of God, who agreed with the written word just as it is, and then others who did not. I need you to join me on that. It's a very important teaching that I will be sharing at that time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.